Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of Conversations. We're committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. On our program, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Matthew Fox is an internationally acclaimed theologian and spiritual maverick who spent the past 40 years revolutionizing Christian theology, taking on patriarchal religion and advocating for a creation-centered spirituality of compassion, justice, and resacralizing of the earth. Originally a Catholic priest, Fox was silenced for a year and then expelled from the Dominican order by Cardinal Ratzinger, who, by the way, later became the Pope, for teaching liberation theology and creation spirituality. Fox currently serves as an Episcopal, an Episcopal priest, having received what he calls religious asylum from the Episcopal Church. With exciting results, he has worked with young people to create the cosmic mass, to revitalize worship by bringing elements of rave and other postmodern art forms to the Western liturgical tradition. He has written more than 33 books, which have sold over 1.5 million copies in 60 languages. Matthew, welcome to Conversations. Thank you, Michael. Good to be with you again. It is great to be with you, and I love your new book, Away to God, Thomas Merton's Creation Spiritual Journey. And uh, I'd love to talk just in the beginning about what was the occasion for writing this book about Thomas Merton and, and maybe talk a little bit about the impact that his work and your relationship had on your life and work? Well, last year was the centennial of Thomas Merton's birth, and I was invited by the Thomas Merton Center, which is located in, in Louisville, Kentucky, near his monastery at Gethsemane. I was invited by them to give a talk on um, Thomas Merton and myself, and um, I changed the title to Thomas Merton, Meister Eckhart, and myself, because Eckhart was so pivotal in Merton's awakening. He he had really a conversion experience, I think, from being a dualistic monk for his first 18 years in the monastery to being a really prophetic voice and prophetic Christian the last 10 years. And the key was, um, was reading Meister Eckhart and being urged to do so by um, Dr. Suzuki, the Japanese philosopher who brought Zen to North America. He's the one who really pushed Merton to start reading Eckhart in a deep way. And clearly, at the beginning of the year 1958, Merton had a tremendous shift of consciousness, and that lasted 10 years until he died in 1968. And um, he himself was writing in his notebook, Eckhart is my lifeboat, Eckhart is my lifeboat. So... So Merton and I have a lot in common, Eckhart being part of it, but also, <clears throat> like many young young men, um, I, was, I read Merton when I was a teenager, and um, he inspired me, especially the invitation to the contemplative life. And um, uh, when I was a young Dominican in my early 20s, I... Uh, wrote Thomas Burton and asked him where's the best place to study spirituality 
get a doctorate in spirituality, and he urged me to go to Paris to the Institut Catholique there. And that is where I met my um, mentor, Pierre Chanou, who named the creation spiritual tradition for me. So <clears throat> that's key to to my um, spirituality and to Meister Eckhart's, and as I demonstrate in this book, to Thomas Merton as well. And um, uh, so I owe him, as I say, all the trouble I've gotten in, I owe to Thomas Merton. <laughs> He's there. <laughs> So this book is a payback. There you go. There you go. And that started a long, that letter started a long uh, connection with him for you. In fact, the title of the book, Away to God, uh, comes from one of his letters. You want to talk a little bit about uh, how that came about? Well, that's right. Um, When I wrote him and asked him where to study uh, spirituality, uh, he wrote back and he... uh, he said these words. He said, I'm glad you're going to work on spiritual theology. I do think we are lying down on the job. When we leave others to investigate mysticism, well, we concentrate on more practical things. What people want of us, after all, is the way to God. So I took that phrase, the way to God, and, and modestly altered it to a way to God, uh, and made that the title of my book, and with the subtitle, Thomas Merton's Creation Spirituality Journey, because... I, I think it really comes out that the four paths of creation spirituality are really um, uh, spoken uh, deeply of by Thomas Merton. And um, he's so articulate, he's such an artist, he's such a great poet, but also a writer, that he can name uh, deep uh, journeys. And it's hard to name deep mystical journeys. Part of mysticism is ineffability, after all, as William James pointed out. So, uh, and as Meister Eckhart says, we we stammer and stutter when we talk about God. But Merton has a great gift for naming uh, the experiential. And so, in the book, I take I have four chapters on the four paths of Christ spirituality, and then. Um, insert Merton into each of them with his language, uh, describing the same, the same experience that I'm, I'm uh, uh, explicating. Yeah, let, let's, before we get into the four paths and talking about that, maybe you could tell people, uh, basically, when you talk about creation spirituality, what are you talking about? Can you define it for us and, and talk about the merging of the uh, Eastern, Western thought and spirituality and how that comes together? Well, Christian uh, spirituality is kind of the, the mirror opposite of fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about original blessing, not original sin. It's not anthropocentric. It's about creation, therefore the whole universe, the cosmos, about 13.8 billion years of the cosmos. It's not anti-science or anti-intellectual. It celebrates uh, science and how science can uh, teach us about uh, the mystery of, of the universe and the ways of the universe and um, therefore should be integrated into our, our spiritual awareness. It's not um, sectarian about Jesus saves. It's about the wisdom that is found in all the world's spiritual traditions and um, the archetype of the cosmic Christ uh, is is very important, and that archetype is is paralleled in other religions, such as a Buddha nature concept in Buddhism, 
or the image of God concept in Judaism, which is now demonstrated to apply to all beings, not just to human beings, and the theme of the sparks of creation that you find in, and the sparks of the soul that you find in the Muslim uh, Sufi tradition, and um, and of Hinduism as well, uh, their tradition of the primordial man, and of course even the, the greeting, the namaste greeting, greeting of how I s- salute the, the divine in you. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. You are cutting. You are cutting in and out a little bit. Uh, just in that last sentence when you spoke about the uh, Muslim greeting and on. Well, there's some funny noises coming through on, on, on your line. I don't know what it is. But, um, yes, it also applies to the Hindu tradition, which talks about the primordial man that um, is the cosmic man who, who uh, gets dismembered, a symbol of chaos, but then gets um, put back together again, a symbol of order. But also in the Hindu tradition, you have the salutation of uh, Namaste, which means I salute, I honor the God in you. So that, too, is a cosmic Christ uh, consciousness. So the theme of the cosmic Christ is very important in creation spirituality. It's the third nature of Christ, as T.R. de Chardin said, and uh, we don't hear about it enough. It goes back to our, our first sources. It goes back to Paul, who wrote before the Gospels were written. And it goes back to the Gospel of Thomas, which was written before the other four Gospels were written. So it actually is very ancient in our tradition. And you find it in the great creation mystics, like uh, Hildegard of Bingen and certainly Meister Eckhart. And we find it in Thomas Merton. But um, it's been a pretty well-kept secret uh, until uh, I've been shouting about it. I wrote a book on the Cosmic Christ 28 years ago, but um, uh, Merton was very, very um, aware of that tradition, too, as he says, we are all other Christs. Yeah. Matthew, are you still doing the Cosmic um, Techno Mass, I think you called it? I went to one one time, and it was a most, uh, most inspiring experience. You're doing that still in Oakland? Uh, we're doing it in other places. Actually, we're doing it in Ashland, Oregon, in September. Ah. And um, yeah, and uh, we did it at uh, the Wild Goose Festival in North Carolina this past month. And um, uh, so we're getting around with it. Yeah, it's definitely still happening. And uh, we did one this weekend, in fact, in Berkeley, University of California, as part of a conference there. So yeah, we're still doing it. We dropped the word techno because that's kind of evolved out in our culture. We just call it the cosmic mass. Hmm. But um, it is about essentially about dancing our worship instead of sitting in pews, uh, daring the preacher to keep us awake and, and being read to instead of, uh, instead of really uh, engaging all our chakras, which happens when you dance. Absolutely. I don't know if you know, but I'm a five rhythms teacher and studied, are you? studied with Gabrielle since 1974. Uh, oh, marvelous! So wow. I, I, I'm uh, very much on that page yeah. with you. And uh, uh, hey, where did you attend the mass? Do you remember where it was? Was it here it, in Oakland? It was in Oakland. Yes. Yeah. yeah okay. It was wonderful the way it was set up and the way you had many different people contributing that evening, as well as the music and the dance. Um, 
quite a quite a memorable experience. I only got to one because I've been living up in the mountains, and uh, now I've moved up to uh, the British Columbia. I live on the Sunshine Coast, but I also wanted to say something about the fact that you are going to be in Auburn, California, August. 19th uh, through 20th at the Foothill Center for Spiritual Living. Right. And, and uh, you're going to do a 7 o'clock lecture and book signing on spirituality for the 21st century and uh, on Friday. And then on Saturday, there'll be from 10 to 1 a workshop and a book signing also on spirituality for the 21st century. And if people want to find out more, they can call 530 530- Eight two three six nine eight six, or go to www.fcsliving.org. So I'll mention that again, and if you missed it at the end of the program, uh, I do want to get a little more into uh, the aspects of creation spirituality because it's uh, this is such a rich book. The way you weave in and out uh, Thomas Merton. Uh, Meister Eckhart, Suzuki, and your own experiences. But there's, there's 12 principles that you talk about in creation spirituality. Oh, Matthew, could you also say the site, is it uh, creationspirituality.com? Uh, I can't remember the site off the top of my head. Oh, um, It's yes. creationspiritualitycommunities.com. Uh, uh-huh. There's one, uh, the Cosmic Mass yeah. is another site, and yeah. then just MatthewFox.org would be another site. Right, mm-hmm. right, that's great. So, I w- maybe we could just go through these fairly quickly. It starts out with the universe as a fundamental blessing, and takes into account the um, uh, 14 or 13.7 billion years of evolution which is very different from uh, traditional Catholicism particularly. Can you, can you speak a little bit about the universe being fundamentally a blessing? Well, again, that's my uh, language of original blessing. And the word blessing is a theological word for goodness. So it is about the goodness of the universe uh, to call it a blessing. And um, again, this is in contrast to the notion of original sin, which begins, well, with a downer. And um, it really makes people suspicious of their own dignity, their own nobility, their own right to be here. And I would say that original sin ideology is not only bad psychologically, but sociologically. I think it's been secularized and taken over by consumer capitalism, because consumer capitalism is really, I think, a secular form of original sin uh, religious ideology is saying that you don't have what it takes uh, to be yourself, to be beautiful, to be noble, and you have to get it from the outside, that is, from buying stuff. And um, uh, so I think original sin is extremely pernicious. And um, Jesus never heard of it. No Jews heard of original (laughs) sin. So it's astounding that the Christian Church has built an edifice on a concept that Jesus never heard of, the concept was first used by Augustine in the 4th century A.D., and that was uh, at the time that the Church was inheriting the empire. So for running an empire, I guess original sin is a good idea, but for um, living a life of, of spirit and spirituality, I think it's, uh, it's atrocious. So 
so um, uh, that's obviously we wouldn't be here without the blessing of the original fireball, without the birth of the uh, original atoms in the fireball, without the birth of 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 galaxies and supernovas and and the birth of the earth and the sun and the moon and all. So and say nothing of the plants and the animals and the fine tuning of the weather and the oxygen and everything that made the earth hospitable to our rather fragile uh but amazing species. So obviously it's everything's been a blessing overall for thirteen point seven billion years. Why wouldn't you begin religion with that instead of with the anthropocentric and narcissistic preoccupation with human sin. As Thomas Burton says, uh, no two, uh, uh, every two non-two-legged creature is a saint. So all these galaxies and all these supernovas and the fireball and everything that preceded us was, uh, was being holy and true to its work. Uh, only humans uh, sin. Yeah. And Thomas Merton, you mentioned... Um consumerism, that was a big issue that he talked about, was the uh, military-industrial complex, consumerism, and uh, the, you know, the way that our culture was based on uh, more stuff, and that was a big issue. Can you talk a little bit about that area, too? Sure. Yes, um, Merton was a very astute um, critic of uh, culture and also of religion and um, he didn't pull any punches and uh, he was a critic of technology for example in his day the big gee whiz factor was getting to the moon and they got to the moon in 1969 so that was after he had died but he, he questioned that he said um, he said even ants can fly so what's the big thing about flying all over the universe if if humanity has not faced the bigger adventure and the more uh, demanding adventure of exploring our own souls and what makes us tick and what what um, makes us so confused and and bearers of evil, he said that we have to address that um, adventure and discovery because otherwise we're just going we're just going to bring our our danger uh, to other other spe- other planets. And um, uh, to me, that really rings true. Now, t- today, of course, the big uh, gee whiz thing is not getting to the moon. It's having a new version of an iPhone or some other gadget every year. And, uh, but I think th- the question is the same. After all, the fellow who, who murdered 50 people in Orlando at the, at the, the gay club, he was um, texting and he was on Facebook at the time he was murdering these people. Uh, and, of course, ISIS, every new gadget that comes out of Silicon Valley, ISIS employs immediately. So clearly, technology is not going to save the human race, and that's what Merton was saying. There's a deeper uh, exploration that has to go on about human nature and our capacity for evil. And um, what, if we, we were, what if Silicon Valley, which I think has good intentions, were to tax itself, uh, it certainly is making lots of extra money, and put some of that extra money into supporting um, groups that are are trying to answer these deeper questions that Merton talks about, about the relationship of contemplation and action, and about uh, compassion 
and and justice and our capacity for that and for cleansing of the wounded soul and the um, and the violent soul. Uh, I think that would be a real good investment. Then we'd have the best of both worlds. Rabbi Heschel said that the human race will not be saved by more information, but by more appreciation. Yeah. So appreciation is a spiritual development, and it needs more um, more examination. And whereas uh, information is what we we're overloaded with on a regular basis uh, with today's uh, uh, news media and so forth. So that's just one example of Merton's critique. He also critiqued the media. He said that it 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 showers us with a glittering Niagara of trivia. Now that was in the 1960s. Merton was saying that. Well, what would he be saying in 2016? I think we oh my kind God. of <laughs> be up the ante on that one. <laughs> we certainly have. So let's talk about this deeper exploration in the context of creation spirituality, this exploring of the inner world and the fourfold journey. So you start with via positiva. Can you explain what that is and um, how we uh, integrate that into our lives? Yes, the via positiva experience of awe and wonder um, and... Uh, joy and delight and i think this is what is where the um the soul is really opened up at first it's the first step in in the mystical journey as uh, rabbi hesher puts it um he says uh, awe is the, the beginning of wisdom and he talks about radical amazement well merton is um is a very fine uh teller of that same experience and i could like share a couple of his wonderful passages. He says, Contemplation is the highest expression of man's intellectual and spiritual life. It is that life itself, fully awake, fully active, fully aware that it is alive. It is spiritual wonder. It is spontaneous awe at the sacredness of life, of being. It is gratitude for life, for awareness, and for being. So he gets it. Uh, that's a, just a very fine naming of the via positiva. And then he gets uh, very specific at times about the the beauty of the world all around us, when he's, whether he's talking about the festival of rain or he's, he talks about the plants. He says, every plant that stands in the light of the sun is a saint and an outlaw. Every tree that brings forth blossoms without the command of man is powerful in the sight of God. Every star that man has not counted is a world of sanity and perfection. Every blade of grass is an angel singing in a shower of glory. These are worlds of themselves. So um, he's, he's, he's delighting and inviting us to delight at the great wonders and the beauty of nature. And, and Merton, of course, he was, um, his ancestors were Welsh. And, of course, the Welsh are Celtic. And this is a very uh, Celtic approach to spirituality, that you find God in a most profound way in nature. Uh, there's a beautiful passage when he's, he's writing about the woods, because he, he moved out of the big monastery to live in a hermitage on the same grounds as the monastery, but uh, to find more solitude there and, and closer to the earth. And there's a beautiful passage, if, if I can share it, about his life in the woods. Can I yes. share that? Oh, absolutely. I live in the woods out of necessity, he writes. 
I get out of bed in the middle of the night because it is imperative that I hear the silence of the night alone and with my face on the floor say psalms alone in the silence of the night. The silence of the forest is my bride and the sweet dark warmth of the whole world is my love. And out of the heart of that dark warmth comes a secret that is heard only in silence. But it is the root of all the secrets that are whispered by all the lovers in their beds all over the world. Mm. It's a beautiful passage where he's marrying the 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 mystery and the the um, the beauty of the silent night uh, with the in the darkness of the night with the silence and uh, and the whispers and the secrets that um, that uh, humans share in in love making. So it's just a marvelous marriage of the cosmic and the human, and we need that so much today. Yeah, he was such a beautiful writer. I want to ask you a question because um, I know that, you know, the first thing we were talking about here, the Via Positiva, uh, uh, Positiva is about contemplation. But one of the things that you and he and uh, I'm not sure about Meister Eckhart, but is the balance between contemplation and action. And is that when you talk about via transformativa, uh, is that the action aspect of the balance with contemplation? That's right, exactly. The via transformativa, that's the fourth path. That is the path of justice and compassion. And Eckhart was very involved in that path. That's why he got condemned by That's the right. Pope. We, yeah. He died. He was working with the Beguines, the women's movement of his day, which the Pope did not like. And he was working with the peasants of his day. And, um, and the Pope objected to that, too. But he was preaching to the peasants in their own language, which at that time was German uh, dialect. And, um, and very few preachers were doing that and very few theologians, but Eckhart was. So uh, on both of those scores, uh, Eckhart was attacked, and um, and that is why his his condemnation was highly political. So he, he walked his talk, and he was teaching the poorest people, the peasants, as well as the women, that they're all uh, other Christs and images of God, and that they had the responsibility uh, to give birth to the Christ in their time, uh, just as Mary did in her time. So he was uh, rewriting, you might say, a lot of the old Christian stories, and this stepped on the toes of a lot of aristocrats, because one of his sermons was how everyone is an aristocrat, because we're all so noble, born of, uh, of, of the divinity that we are. And this did not sit well with the aristocrats of Germany, and they, in fact, called the first trial against Eckhart. Mm. You do have a but lot. You, oh. you, you and uh, uh, Merton and Eckhart have a lot in common, given the the persecution of truth and involvement in uh, justice and uh, healing and working with the masses. Uh, you know that's, well, that's very true. Merton was the first religious figure in America to come out against the Vietnam War. Yep. he beat uh, Dr. King to it. And um, the truth is, I think it's really confirmed now that he was um, assassinated by the CIA when he was in Bangkok. 
he had just finished uh, his final talk was on Karl Marx and monasticism in a retreat center in Bangkok for, for about 200 nuns and, and monks. And three hours later, he was dead. And um, uh, I've, I've talked down to three CIA agents and asked them, Did you peop- who were there in the Southeast Asia at the time? And I said, did you people kill Merton? The first one said, I'll neither affirm it nor deny it. The second one said, we were flooded with money, and there was absolutely no accountability. So any single CIA agent who felt Merton was a threat to the country, and of course this is the height of the Vietnam War, I could have had him killed with absolutely no questions asked. The third person I asked, who I asked, uh, I met him a month after the book came out, I said to him, did you people kill Merton? He said, yes. He said, last 40 years of my life, I've been trying to cleanse my soul from what I did in the CIA for those three years that I was working in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. So Merton died a martyr to peace and because uh, he was so outspoken. He was a, a mentor to Father uh, Phil Berrigan and Daniel Berrigan, who died just a few months ago. Right. and was an activist right. priest who went to jail often for his nonviolent uh, uh, objections to uh, actions, really, against the Vietnam War. So Merton was definitely on the FBI and, and the CIA watching list. They were intercepting his mail and phone calls, even though it was against the law at the time, just like they did to Dr. King. So uh, he died a martyr. And I think it's pretty foolish to think that uh, that kind of thing isn't going on and can't happen today. So being an activist, really being an activist and standing up for the truth, um, you know, takes a particular kind of courage in knowing that, uh, you know, you're putting your life on the line. And so many people in so many issues don't do that. Um, You know, I'm thinking of, of course, the rise of Hitler, the McCarthy era, uh, many instances. And right now what's happening Politically, I think the underbelly of America is being revealed, which is uh, an opportunity for healing, but also an opportunity for people of faith and commitment to stand strong out in the world and have their voice heard. As you said, the media is so controlled. How uh, do you see people overcoming the fear to stand and speak up for what they know is the truth? Well, first of all, I want to um, second what you just said, and I think you said it very eloquently, that we're living in, in dangerous times, and um, obviously uh, the Germans failed to stand up to Hitler in time, and, uh, and history can indeed uh, repeat itself. So your question is about where does the courage come from to do this? Yes. Uh, well, you know, the word courage is two French words for a big heart, a large heart. Large and our hearts grow through the via positiva, through falling in love. If we were really in love, for example, with the future generations, uh, we would not be tolerating the destruction of the planet that's going on and the denial of climate change that's going on. Again, in, a, in one entire political party in America is in complete denial about climate change. I was speaking, I was part of a conference a few months ago in Florida. And the theme of the conference was the rising seas, the climate change as it's affecting Florida. And the, the conference uh, led off with a scientist who had pictures up there of what Florida looks 
like today? What's it going to look like 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 40 years from now? And it's just chopping off, chopping off huge chunks of Florida until there will be no more Florida. Those are the scientific facts. But at that time that I was there in this conference, there were three major Floridian politicians, the governor, the current governor, uh, and two men running for president at the time. All three of them were in complete denial about climate change. What me worry? And yet in in Miami, in South Miami, there's six inches of water on the sidewalks. Uh, the climate change is already happening in Florida, and you have people in denial. So, so that's you know that's how Hitler was born too, through people in denial saying, "Oh, we can't be that bad." We, he's appealing to our anger and our moral outrage, so so he represents me. Well, a lot of that I think is happening with the Trump phenomenon too. But as you say, it's it can be a good thing because the it's getting the pus out. It's it's showing the wounds we have in America, the wounds of racism, and the wounds of uh, the, a lot of people who feel left out and and rightly so, actually angry about the way they were treated when Wall Street uh, raped Main Street, and now Wall Street is doing its thing again. It was bailed out by Main Street, but uh, Main Street is still suffering, and of course, many of the Wall Street banksters are not paying their fair share of taxes and so forth. So there is anger in, 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 the, in the country, and, and a man like Trump taps into it. And, but unfortunately, he's looking for scapegoats, and, just as Hitler was, because he senses that that's what the angry soul often uh, lurches, lurches out at. So it is a dangerous time, just like you say. But courage comes from truly loving uh, uh, what we say we love, and um, uh, developing the heart, as, as Dr. King said, you have to love something more than the fear of death if you're going to live. So um, uh, that, I think, is the direction of, from which courage is born. So in order to love what we say we love, we have to start with loving what arises inside of us and the shadow side, which brings us to via negativa and that going into the depths of our own uh, grief, our suffering, our darkness, uh, into the still dark place and being able to let go of that. Can you talk about the transformative nature of Via Negativa? Yeah, so there are really two dimensions of the Via Negativa. One is silence and stillness, letting go of uh, images and of, of input. And, and sound and so forth. So that's a lot of meditation focuses on that, the emptying experience. And that's very important because we can be filled both with um, negative uh, memories, but also even with, uh, with other uh, issues of passion that, that deserve to be quieted at times. Uh, like the, the Psalm says in the Hebrew Bible, be still and know that I am God. So a stillness is required to go deep into ourselves and find the divineness there. But the second part to the via negativa, like you say, is about grief and being being uh, open to the suffering and listening to it. Suffering within ourselves, our own wounds, as you say, our own shadows, but also the suffering of the world and the suffering of other other humans and other other beings at this time. There's so much suffering going on as so many as the, the climate change and so much is going on so being being able to undergo that suffering and not um 
not fall into addictions to cover up the pain, which is a very much a temptation, um, and not run from it and go shopping to cover up the pain, but rather to to let it um, uh, wash over us. Uh, and then uh, out of that experience of both falling in love uh, with life, which is the first path, and undergoing the letting go and the letting be that we learn from the second path, whether it's silence or whether it's suffering, then you're ready for the third, third path, which is creativity, to be a creativa. Out of this emptying, something new can be born, and that's, uh, that's the, the stepping stone to uh, being effective with our justice-making and compassion and our, our healing and even our celebrating. I love the via creativa, and I love that you um, have had a long history, and so did Thomas Merton, of creative expression. And, um, you know, when we quit anthropomorphizing the world and we, um, and we recognize that we're an integral part of nature, then that takes on a whole different, um, different meaning because everything is always blossoming and moving with seasons and cycles. And there is something that's arising in the human species, at least from my perspective and the people that I work with in, in my shamanic work, that is, um, bringing forth a, a level of creativity and passion and compassion that is not individual-centered, uh, 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 individual-focused. It's a uh, collective focus. It's, it's, I don't know what your thought is, but groups that are coming together uh, are dropping away the the belief of separateness and recognizing and in that place a certain kind of creative uh, creativity arises. It, does that make sense what I'm saying, Matthew? Definitely, yes. And it's the recovery, rediscovery of interdependence. Yes. Which, thank God, even today's physics is, um, is grounded in. So now we have a, a marriage of uh, science and spirituality too because of that. And as you say, this, this increases our capacity for creativity, I say, not just as individuals, but as communities and as um, uh, social organisms. And that's very exciting because, frankly, I, I'm not sure that uh, any, our species has anything going for it except our creativity. We've painted ourselves into a corner in so many ways, but our creativity is capable of, uh, of moving us, us on. So we need an explosion of creativity today, and um, whether it means reinventing forms of economics that really work for everyone on the planet, not just all the two-legged ones from all the beings on the planet, the oceans and the forests and the four-legged ones and the rest. We need uh, forms of education that are fresh and new because the forms we're in are, first of all, they're utterly boring, but secondly, they're patriarchal. They're all about the left brain. They're not about intuition which um, Einstein said is the heart of where of values come from the intuition, he said, not from rationality. And we need to educate all our chakras, not just our heads. So we need uh, an awakening in education, we need an awakening in religion and worship, and uh, 
and, and ecumenism, drawing forth the wisdom from all the world traditions. And, uh, and then we also need uh, an awakening, of course, around the ecological challenges we have. But it's through creativity that we're going to respond to these ecological challenges. And so that's what is going to save us, if anything, is going to be a, what I'd call a, a global renaissance, a rebirth of our species that puts creativity forward and um, uh, getting over our denial and our, our systems of injustice. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think one of the things we need is more heretics like you and Merton. <laughs> and <laughs> well, I'm, say, I'm saying that particularly because I love the way in your new book, A Way to God, Thomas Merton's Creation Spiritual, uh, Spirituality Journey, that you lay his thinking against the claims that were made against you by uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, who later became the uh, Pope. Uh, and, and I've forgotten there were seven of them, I believe. But I thought it would be interesting to go through those seven accusations like you do in the book and look at each of them. Some of them we've, we've mentioned, but not in depth of how, uh, as a way of understanding Merton more as well as your own uh, philosophy, because I think each one of those claims uh, is, is really powerful to, the defense of it is really powerful and reveals the kind of racism, sexism, um, colonialism, all the isms that are tearing the world apart are, are really in those seven accusations. Uh, well, they are. And so what I did, you know, I was accused of seven so-called heresies by Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, who, who was assigned by Pope John Paul II to bring the Inquisition back, which he did. And then, as you say, he became Pope Benedict XVI. But the, the objections to my work, I, so I have a few chapters here where I, I lay out his objections, and then I, I put Thomas Merton in the docket with me, sort of as my defense, in the sense that he too was uh, wrestling with these same issues. For example, the first objection to my work was that I'm a feminist theologian, which I did not think then, or even now, is a heresy. But, um, uh, but then I show that Merton too was a feminist theologian. He talked a lot about God as mother, and um, he, he engaged in a, um, a very lively correspondence with Dr. Rosemary Ruther, who was um, quite a radical Catholic feminist theologian. She was only 29 at the time. She was teaching at Howard University, a black university in Washington, D.C. And they engaged in this very lively correspondence for, for what, a year and a half or so. And um, though she was 29, he was like 50 or 51, uh, and she was not particularly um, respectful toward him. He very much listened to her, and and uh, they were uh, going back and forth in a very deep way. So clearly, he was very open. And of course, they were talking about 1967. You know, that was the early stages of the women's movement. And by the way, also let me say that um, um, Merton's um, uh, he responded immediately to Rachel Carson's book that came out. Uh, in 1962, uh, Silent Spring, which many um, uh, revere as the first real uh, strike in the ecological movement. 
and she was fired from her job as a science teacher in a university for that book. They said that she was a, a, a hysterical woman in love with trees and bunnies, and they fired her. But he wrote a letter to her immediately on reading the book and said, this is fabulous, it's so important. Because of your work, we're going to cease using DDT on the monastic farm here, etc., etc. So, uh, again, he was very much listening to women philosophers uh, at, a, at a very uh, early age, that is to say, in the early 1960s, and he, was, he, he leapt right into the ecological movement immediately. So um, another objection to my work was... Uh, well, let me well, just, Matt, uh, Matthew, let me just say one thing further about that, because I think it's, it deserves more than that. You know, the Dalai Lama said that uh, the world is going to be saved by women, particularly Western women. And oh. there, there's a rise in the empowerment of the divine feminine. Uh, there's a whole really spiritual movement that is around that. What are your, what are your thoughts of that and how to, why is that important and how do we support that and empower that? Right. Well, absolutely. And I've written at length about this, about we need a real ba gender balance of these sacred masculine and divine feminine and uh but what we have now is an is a, an unbalanced masculine uh it's not a it's a toxic masculine so i wrote a book on that uh about recovering the sacred masculine but uh we need a sacred marriage of the two the divine feminine and the sacred masculine and as you say that this is happening the women's movement is certainly a big part of it the return of the goddess and so forth but um uh, it's not going to really take place if we don't also critique the masculine, because, as I say, the goddess uh, returning is deserving of a worthy consort, and uh, the masculine has been perverted, and uh, we have to shake up that up. And, and um, you know, there have been studies the last few years on how much depression there really is in men in our country, and especially young men, and... Uh, uh, we're not moving nearly fast enough uh, on that score. A healthy uh, male also welcomes the goddess back and the divine feminine. And again, this shows uh, when it comes to the, the Vatican that it's uh, it's uh, been unhealthy. I think this pope is, is making some efforts, but on, for 34 years under the previous two popes, they were shooting down all everything that was... Um, uh, that bespoke the the divine feminine, and um, as I say, they they were like the Taliban and Pat Robinson uh, that they were so threatened by the feminine. And this, as I say, the, the first two objections to my work from the Vatican were one, I'm a feminist theologian; two, I call God Mother. So really, this is a Rorschach test about the the Vatican under those two popes that was so anti women. Uh, but I'm glad to hear those those good words from the Dalai Lama. By the way, here's another story in the Dalai Lama that I picked up after the book this book on Merton came out. Uh, this comes from a very um, practicing Buddhist, a North American. He teaches uh, vipassana meditation, and he's he's um, studied in India and uh, Tibet, and he knows the Dalai Lama. And he said that a year or so ago, there was a journalist who asked the Dalai Lama, "Do you believe in God?" And the Dalai Lama said kind of quietly, well, yes. And then the journalist said, well, do you really? Uh, and he said, many Buddhists don't use the word God. 
And so what kind of God do you believe in? And the Dalai Lama said, I believe in the God of Thomas Merton. <laughs> ah, wow. I think that's really wonderful. Because, <laughs> you know, in his last journey to the East, uh, Merton met the Dalai Lama, who was only 33 at the time. And they hit it off tremendously, and so much so that they both canceled meetings for the next day and had two old days uh, together rather than the scheduled one day together. And, of course, Merton was dead a few weeks after that. But... Um, not only Thich Nhat Hanh, but all, uh, not only Dalai Lama, but also Thich Nhat Hanh was very uh, smitten by Thomas Burton. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh nominated him for a Nobel Peace Prize, in fact. That's right, yeah. So we don't have a lot of time left, but let's just go through some of the other ones that stand out uh, uh, for you. I'm particularly interested about sexual repression and, and uh, homosexuality and some of the other uh, issues there in that list. Mm. Well, um, uh, yes, Merton was, um, as I say, for 18 years, as a, as a young man, Merton was very um, uh, uh, licentious. Uh, he loved partying, and he loved drinking, and he fathered an illegitimate child when he was in college in England. And um, when he, he moved to America and went to Columbia University and got his master's degree there, uh, he was a big partier there, too. But then he had this conversion at 26. And interestingly enough, his conversion happened at the Shrine of the Black Madonna in Cuba. Hmm. And um, then uh, the next year, he joined the Trappists. And then he, he had this kind of guilt-ridden attitude that fit with the theology then reigning in the, in the monastic order there. Um, as I say, he carried that for 18 years, but then Merton, then Eckhart and Dr. Suzuki broke him out of that. And so he, he had a much more holistic attitude towards sexuality after that. And in fact, a few years before he died, he had an affair with a nurse when he was, um, he was having an operation in Louisville and, uh, on his back and the nurse was his uh, masseuse and, and they had an affair for six months. And um, I find it very interesting because um, St. Augustine was like Merton, and so far he too had a uh, quite a licentious uh, youth, and he too fathered an illegitimate child. But when he became a Christian, he took the vow of celibacy, and he became extremely dualistic and uh, projected his guilt and shame on the rest of us. And he died at 76, um, never having reconciled sexuality and spirituality, in fact, dividing the two. But Merton, who died at just 53, was so much more mature because his, his affair with this nurse, um, it, it allowed him to experience real human love. He had never experienced as a young man. He was just sowing his oats. He didn't treat women well uh, in, in his, his uh, youth. But uh, as a more grown-up person, and with a, a deep spiritual um, understanding, he did reconcile the spirituality of, of sexuality. And so, in my opinion, even though he lived 22 years uh, uh, shorter lifespan than Augustine, he was so much greater a human being and greater a theologian because he did not dump his dualism, guilt, and shame on the rest of us. Instead, he, he wrote very eloquently of the power of human love and the, the marriage of, this, of the sexuality and spirituality. Mm-hmm. Now, another objection to my work is that um, 
I work too closely with Native Americans, which is an odd thing to say, actually. But, but it's interesting to me that Merton, again, was very uh, uh, aware of the history of genocide in America, and as well as, of course, the civil rights issues and the history of racism. And he wrote a lot about that. He backed not only Dr. King when it was dangerous to do so, but also Malcolm X in his struggle for racial justice. So, um, But also he, he was very uh, keen on writing about the, the history of genocide toward the indigenous people. And uh, I really praise him for that and the way in which he expressed that. Um, sad shadow chapter in American history is uh, is very powerful as well. So he was such a, and then of course he critiques false religion as well. He, he talks about how when when um, politics and fundamentalist religion get together, this produces an unbelievable orgy of idolatry. He says an unbelievable orgy of idolatry. Wonderful. So uh, <laughs> he's not afraid to talk about uh, bad religion too. In fact. In one, in an Easter sermon at his monastery, the year before he died, he he talks about how it's very easy to worship uh, a a cult of the corpse of Christ and a wax model of Christ instead of the real thing and so forth. And he's uh, he's unstinting in his uh, criticism of of bad religion as well. Yeah. I hate to say it, I have so many more things I'd love to talk with you about, Matthew, and I just want to, number one, say, get this book, Away to God, Thomas Merton's Creation Spirituality. Matthew, it's just always such a joy to be around you and to have this time together with you, and thank you for just the inspiring work that you continue to do nonstop. Well, thank you, Michael, and thank you for a program like this where we can talk about useful and important things like Thomas Merton. So great. Yeah. Thank you much, Michael. Wonderful to be with you. You take care. Thank you so much. Conversations is an independently produced program supported by KVMR 89.5 Nevada City and listener contributions. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinking in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or order any of our past shows, go to our website at arewelistening.net.